He literally took out his laptop and showed me how he memorized these longer pieces and how he wrote up his set list. He would have hotels print out these rants because he was still in the process of memorizing it. And like he was such a written, organized, kind of admin, diligent kind of guy. And that's who I am. And it gave me space to work the way that I clearly need to work. Hello, Happy New Year, and welcome to the No Name NYC podcast. I say Happy New Year if you're listening to this on the day that it dropped. It is New Year's Day, and if not, well, just, hey, how you doing? My name is Eric Vetter. Welcome to our podcast, beginning a new season. The voice you heard up front was Liz Mealy, comedian and author now. Liz Mealy, very funny woman. She has a special out right now streaming on YouTube called The Ghost of Academic Future. It is hilarious. I recommend that to you. She also has a book with the awesome title, Why Cats Are Assholes. And we're going to get into it with Liz in a little bit. Actually, we already did, but we're going to share it with you in a little bit. Beginning a new year. Well, you know, I guess this is that time of year where a lot of people kind of reflect on what's happened in the past year and look forward to what's going to happen in the future. A lot of people are trying to forget the shit that happened in the past year and are trying to be in denial about what's going to happen. But uh, there's a lot of reflecting going on. That's what I'm saying. And as I was reflecting on my year, it occurred to me that a couple of things that happened to me in December, I think are great metaphors for the kind of year I had. The first thing, one morning I woke up, it's pretty early, and I'm trying to decide if I'm going to stay up or go back to bed. But I got up, I had to go to the bathroom. I'm going to the bathroom, and my phone starts ringing. And I don't know why. I don't always answer immediately unless I know who's calling. And it was pretty early in the morning, but something said, just answer it. It was my therapist. I forgot that we had a phone session that morning, and I found myself having a therapy session while I sat on the toilet bowl. Now, I mean, I could have excused myself Or I could have just gone about my business. I mean, I I would have held off for an hour if I could have, but that's why I woke up in the first place. And, you know, I guess I could have explained myself and flushed and all that. But I thought to myself, this is her Monday morning too, and why make her listen to all that? So I didn't say anything about it. I just sat there for an hour and, you know, hung up, and then I flushed and washed up. But I, I thought to myself, yeah, that's kind of how this year is gone. Having a therapy session on the toilet bowl, yeah, that that, that works. I like the imagery of that. Uh, now, the other thing that happened, let me just state for anyone who, who's new here and doesn't know me, I've lost basically all of my vision in the last two years. I mean, a little bit of light and shadow, but basically I've, I've lost my vision. And got together with some friends recently. We decided that we wanted to go bowling. Uh, now, when I was younger, I used to be a pretty good bowler. In my early 20s, I, I averaged somewhere around 160, which is not bad if you're an amateur. But I haven't really bowled in about 30 years. So I didn't know how it was going to play out. Now, part of me said muscle memory. Like, I used to be able to do it. You do the same thing every time. I should at least do well on, on the first roll. You know, I might even get a strike. On the other hand, I might kill somebody. So I had kind of set up for myself the goal of trying to break 50 and nothing and no one else. It didn't quite work out that way. I actually bowled something like a 20, something like that. Out of 20 rolls in the 10 frames, I actually hit pins on like 
three of them. That's all right. I'm a blind guy. I got an excuse. But here's the thing. There was one ball that I threw, like most of the other ones I threw, that went right into the gutter. And about halfway down the alley, it jumped out of the gutter and proceeded to hit the pins, and I got a strike. Now, I'm telling you, I have several witnesses to this. I initially thought maybe they're yanking me, you know, like, oh, let's fuck with the blind guy. Or maybe they're trying to make me feel better. Like, I, But I got several confirmations. That's clearly what happened. Someone who had gotten up to get a beer, the bartender would say, oh, you're getting a, getting a beer for the strike? And he's like, what strike? So uh, the bartender knew. So this is a pretty remarkable thing. Now, I got to tell you, like I said, I haven't bowled really at all in about 30 years. But when I was a younger person, I did spend a lot of time in a bowling alley says more about me than I probably want to share. But I've seen a lot of things in a bowling alley. I've seen a ball jump out of the gutter, I think, maybe twice. And I can assure you, it didn't jump out of the gutter for a strike. So that was kind of amazing. And I thought maybe that's kind of a metaphor for the year I've been having as I adjust to going blind. Got out of the gutter and got a strike. At least it's something to shoot for in the new year. So as we begin this new year... My wish for all of you listening is that you have less therapy sessions while on the toilet bowl, and I hope you all get out of the gutter and get lots of strikes. Was that corny enough? All right, enough of that. We're going to get to the interview with Liz Mealy. Great conversation. But first, a word from our sponsor. Get away to Green Bay. Yes, that's right, the historic Astor House Bed and Breakfast in beautiful Green Bay, Wisconsin, where your innkeepers, Tom and Linda Stieber, will greet you and make you feel at home in any of their five luxury accommodations, all of which have their own bath, and some of which even have a jacuzzi. Now, bed and breakfast, this is the bed and breakfast. You ever go to a bed and breakfast and think, I'd rather not have the breakfast? Or maybe you wake up and there was almost no breakfast and it's all gone by the time you got there. Or you do get there and there's like a couple of strips of bacon, maybe one or two turkey sausages, a box of half-eaten cereal, and some questionable fruit. That will never happen to you at the historic Astor House Bed and Breakfast, where nothing is more majestic than the fresh, homemade, yummy, scrumptious... Their breakfasts are amazing and are worth the trip alone. And after breakfast, if you want to know what's going on in Green Bay, what's fun to do, what restaurants do you need to check out, well, ask Tom and Linda. They know everything. They're totally connected there, and they will see to it that you have a blast every second you are up there. So, what do you want to do? You want to make some reservations? You got some questions? Check them out online. Go to www.astorhouse.com. That is Astorhouse, A-S-T-O-R-H-O-U-S-E.com. Escape to Green Bay today. You know, when I watched your newest special on YouTube, obviously it's very funny and I love your work, but... This is the first large body of work I've ever heard you do that I didn't know most of it from seeing it get developed along the way. That's a good point because I feel like I've been doing No Name a really long time. How long have you had that show? Coming up on 29 years. So I think I met you when I was 19. 
I think you had so, just turned 18. I may be wrong. You no, know, you could you could absolutely. I started when I was 16. So that means almost my entire career I've been working out jokes at No Name. So I that is probably pretty true. And most of those jokes from this special I did via Zoom and park shows and rooftop shows. And it was even a odder way of me developing an hour because yeah. of the pandemic. So it is really fascinating because I always – I would say I would do your show at least every couple of months. So if it takes me about a year, year and a half to write an hour, you would at least get like the beginnings and and the and you were the one of my favorite places to just be like, I have an idea. It might not be good, but here's some thoughts and feelings. You're one of the few people that I've known pretty much from from close to the beginning. So like I've been able to see you, you know, and, and it's funny. I I've said it to a couple of people. You're one of a very small handful of people whom I've known for any length of time that I knew when you were still pretty new to it, from the beginning, you had it. You and Leanne Lord. It's not like you were fully formed from the beginning, but y'all had a real good sense of joke writing. You had the work ethic. And from the first times that I knew of you to be on stage, I was always comfortable with, with having you out there. Like, I know it's going to be a good quality set. Yeah. It was kind of fun to be able to see a whole set of basically unknown Liz Mealy material to me on this. I didn't enjoy it more than I normally enjoy your work, but I was able to enjoy it in different ways. Like, oh, this is what an audience member feels like. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah, like you got to see, especially because I have like storytelling, I would have like a long bit. And by the time I would come back to your show, it would be shorter and it would be tighter. And I was just working out a couple of punchlines here and there. But you would see both kind of the beginning, middle and end of the process as opposed to this is like fully formed, which is I think sometimes, especially with how you ran your show, you you ran your show as like we let people just do whatever they want to do. Some of it's going to be good. Some of it's not going to be good. And that's that's the nature of the show. I think some people, because by the time they see my stand-up, it is completely polished. They have this unrealistic idea of, you know, how jokes are formed, which it really, and sometimes it's like, I'll do a five-minute story and have one laugh. And then as I keep pushing it and pushing and pushing it, eventually it's like, dun, 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 dun. And there's like lots of laugh lines. But in the beginning, you're like, I don't know. I just find this interesting and I don't know where this is going to go. Sometimes you're just trying to gauge what do I want to include of the story. Yeah. And then you start to find the pockets where, oh, wait, that's, that's kind of quirky. We can do something with that. And- yeah, or, or what do even people care about? Because I think they're in yeah. a sense, like sometimes I go into a bit thinking like, oh, they're going to really care about ghost tours. And they don't. But really, <laughs> they care about the nature of how I believe in ghosts or don't believe in ghosts. Or like the fact that that joke, it starts out about going to a bachelorette party and just why is my friend have 16 friends at a bachelorette like that is ridiculous but what made me happy is the fact that we went on a ghost tour and it became this whole like it's one of my favorite bits i've ever written and it's five <laughs> minutes long and it's really really dumb and it makes me happy well it, it made me happy listening to it it occurred to me that in the new special something that i look You have a very distinctive style and it's largely deadpan, you know, uh, not low energy, but low key. And I think you're now punctuating a little bit more with like bursts of yelling about something and then going back. And anytime you do that, I think it's hilarious. And I was wondering if that was a conscious choice or if it's not something new that I'm... I think it's honestly me being more in touch with how I talk in general, which is I am a pretty even keel, we'll say level-headed in air quotes, kind of person. 
But when I get pissed off, I do have these outbursts of like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, are you fucking <laughs> like and one of my favorite anecdotes or like inside jokes with my family is like, I remember I was in traffic and I had my sister on speakerphone and she's having a bad day and I'm giving her advice. And I was like, well, you just, you know, you got to believe in yourself and you just need to be like, maybe take some time to meditate. Get the fuck out of my fucking lane. I'll fucking murder your fucking family. But if you just really like try to meditate and really get close to your heart, like just the anomaly of how crazy I am. And I think that awareness of the fact that I, I try to be a nice person. I try to be there for friends. I try to show up for my family. But I'm also this odd loose cannon. Like even, um, you remember Maria Shahada, right? When she lived in Oh yeah, city. yeah, yeah, definitely. So I was in London with Maria, which is where she lives now. We're like lost. Like we're literally looking at Google Maps trying to find somewhere that we're supposed to go. So we're standing on a corner looking at our phones, trying to figure out where to go. And this guy is like, you want to buy a paper? Like a little London, almost, you know, felt like a newsie paper. And I was like, oh, no, thank you. And we go back to our phones. He goes, paper. And I go, nope, we're good. Thank you so much. And he goes, paper. I was like, get the fuck out of my fucking face. And it just comes out of me and I feel terrible because I'm yelling at what is probably a 14-year-old kid. But like Marie always makes me feel better. She's like, you were nice the first two times. <laughs> like, And like he didn't listen. I think more and more getting in tune with the fact that I am this kind of outbursty person. I have a lot of anger inside me and I do try to suppress it because I know it's like not relevant or I'm taking things out of context or like, right. you know, I'm giving too much validity to something. But at the same time, I also know that that's kind of what my friends like about like I am just kind of like it's like when a kitten tries to hurt you and you're like, that's so cute. Like, I'm so much bigger than you. And yeah, like, yeah. I could I could snap your head in half. I kind of feel like that. Like, I'm just this kitten that's like yelling at people and they're like, your anger is so adorable. And you're like, no, I'm really mad. <laughs> mad, guys. <laughs> so I think, honestly, especially because I have my first hour, my oldest hour from I think like 10 years ago up online you can kind of see the trajectory of me just getting more comfortable i think my voice was always there but the cadence and the energy has shifted a lot more to my natural energy and the ups and downs of my natural energy so we've talked about how you've been doing no name since late 50s when did you actually first start i started in 2002 i was 16 years old Was that something that you had longed to do before you even got there? A little bit. I mean, I I discovered stand-up when I was like 13, 14. I started watching it on TV. My older sister went to college. She went to George Washington University. So we would go to the DC Improv. She would take me to see shows. Because she went to a big university, they would have comedians come. So I saw Dave Chappelle there. I saw Jay Leno there. I think for me, I didn't know right away that I could do it at 16. Like, I didn't know everybody was in their 20s, 30s, 40s. And I was like, oh, I guess I have to wait until I'm 25. I literally was like, when I'm 25, I'm going to do stand up. And somebody was like, why do you have to wait that long? And I was like, I don't know. I just felt like I had to because this is like long before podcasts and all that stuff. I read Margaret Cho's book when I was 14. She started when she was 15. And then Dave Chappelle started at 14. Chris Rock started at 17. There's a bunch of people that started in their teens. And I was like, oh, I don't know you could do that. So I wanted to start when I was 15, but I was like really scared. And then a friend that was already doing open mics was the one that kind of pushed me a little bit. So I started coming into the city. I was living in Jersey with my family. So I started coming into the city when I was 16. And then I got into the new school 
when I moved here for college, I, you couldn't stop me. I was doing it every night. I remember my dad was like, you can only do stand-up on the weekends. I was like, yeah, totally. I'm only going to do it on the weekends. And then I was doing like three shows a night every night. Everybody that has known me since I was 17 remembers I would do my college work at the bar. I would pack a wow. peanut butter and jelly sandwich. I would always pack my dinner, uh-huh. which is peanut butter and jelly, and probably goldfish. And I would do my homework in between sets at the bar. Where were you working out in those days? Uh, first was like open mics and like bringer shows and stuff. And then when I was 17, I started barking for Ha. I started handing out flyers for Ha. Everybody did that for five minutes, it seems. Yeah, I did it for three years. So I, I lasted a long time. Eventually got kicked out, which was probably one of the best things to happen because then I started doing the Laugh Lounge. And then I started, when I was 19, I got passed at most comedy clubs. So I, I started working at Caroline's. I started working at the Comic Strip. I started working at Stand Up New York. Um, I started working at Gotham the Laugh Lounge, I went from basically being somebody that handed out flyers, but because they had so many shows, very shitty shows, but so many shows, I was doing three shows a night every night and then clearly scaled back because when you're nobody, that's unrealistic amount of stage time. But then once I started getting passed at clubs when I was younger, I, I just started getting more work and working anywhere that would have me. I know that you at some point along the line reached out to George Carlin and and he responded, correct? Yeah, so when I was 15, before I started, I remember like coming out to my parents that I wanted to be a comic. Like kids would come out being gay. I was just like, hey, I'm probably not going to get a real job. So um, these are my dreams. Please hold them to your heart. And my parents were like oddly supportive. It took about 10 years of them being like, if you want to get a real job, we would support that. And I'm like, thank mm-hmm. you so much. I don't. A lot of it was because my parents are both veterinarians. They owned their animal hospital, and I was the cat lady, and it looked like I was going to become a veterinarian. They just sold their practice a couple of years ago. He's like, I'm so glad you didn't become a vet because, like, they made a lot of money, like, selling it, and they wouldn't have made that if they gave it to me. So I was just like, so you're welcome. Like, (laughs) stressing about me maybe being homeless for the rest of my life really helped you out. But... I was the one that was going to be a vet out of all four of my siblings. So Mm -hmm. my dad told me if I want to be good at something, I should ask the people that are already where I want to be. So I should write to the comedians that I look up to. So I was watching a lot of Comedy Central. I was watching a lot of HBO. I was like watching anything that had stand up. So I just made a list of like all my favorite comics, Eddie Murphy, George Carlin, Richard Pryor, Jim Gaffigan. But this is before the Jim Gaffigan that we know. Wanda Sykes Hall, she was married to a guy. You know what I mean? Like what I did every day after school, I would look up emails, any kind of I was looking I was like on websites like, you know, Homes of the Stars. I was looking for any kind of address or website or email or whatever. My dad taught me to write it like it was a business email. So it was like my name, my address my email, my phone number, and then it was like, will you give me advice about stand-up? Signed, Liz. Hand-mailed some, I emailed some people, but I wrote to about 40 comedians. Mm -hmm. A couple of them sent me headshots, what really bothered me, because I didn't want a headshot, like I wanted you to tell me how to be a comedian. So two people got back to me. Judd Apatow wrote me back. I had his email because his email was on his website. Like this was post Freaks and Geeks, but pre 40 year old virgin. He wrote me back and was basically like stay in school, but he was very nice. And now since working at the cellar and him doing his Carlin documentary, we've talked and he knows that he wrote me back and it's been really sweet. And then Carlin, because I put my number on there, Carlin called me. So he called my house phone and talks to me for like 10 minutes, kind of basic advice, like, you know, get up on stage, write, da 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 I really appreciate my dad. My dad told me to write it on a note card because like, mm-hmm. you're gonna forget, you know, this is pretty priceless. And so then Carlin said that I could 
write to him anytime. So like I hadn't done stand up yet. So every couple of months I'd write to him. He'd always write me back. Eventually when I did it, I told him and then I got written up in the New Yorker for handing out flyers in Times Square and I mailed him that magazine and he called me again to say that he loved it. He didn't know what barking was and thought it was so cool. He sent me a signed book. Right after we talked, he sent me a signed headshot that said, go do it, which I still have. And then he sent me and my girlfriends free tickets to see him in New Brunswick because I was in Jersey. Uh And then when I was 19, I emailed him to be like, hey, I see that you're going to be in New York. If you had time, could I maybe like pick your brain? There's some things that I'm working. I had been doing it for like three years at that point. So I got lunch with him in the lobby of his hotel and he like pulled out his laptop. It's the reason I have a MacBook. It's the reason I even write still to this day and organize certain things because I just was at this place where I didn't understand how things flowed and how to like make a longer set. And now some of it's like you can't make a longer set if you don't have any jokes, Liz. But like (laughs) at the time, I just didn't understand. And so he literally took out his laptop and like showed me how he memorized these longer pieces and how he wrote up his set list and just how organized he was. And it was, he's such a perfect um, uh, person to look up to. You know, everybody looks up to him as a comedian, but as a creative person, like I really loved Sinbad. Like I was obsessed with Sinbad when I was a kid. I thought he was so funny, but I read an Mm -hmm. article when I was 15 that he didn't write anything down. And it really Mm -hmm. kind of, hurt my creative process because I, th- I thought I was a fraud for years because I've always written stuff down. I'm dyslexic. I'm very visual. I have to write it down. That's half yeah. of how I memorize things. So when Carlin like showed me how he wrote everything down, he would have hotels print out these rants because he was still in the process of memorizing it. And like he was such a written, organized, kind of admin, diligent kind of guy. And that's who I am. And it gave me this space to work the way that I clearly need to work creatively and in this very kind of regimented way like Seinfeld's like that and there's definitely comics like that but there really is a divide like Adrian Appalucci is a really good friend of mine Adrian doesn't write anything down and I just found that out like a year ago and she's bought me notebooks like she clearly knows I write stuff down and I should have seen the signs because when she'd be putting together like a TV set list or like like a headlining set list she'd be like oh I don't know if, what to put here and I was like oh what about this joke she goes oh yeah I forgot about that joke I'm like how do you forget oh. about joke? like there was clearly signs that she didn't write stuff down right that would probably be the sort of thing that would drive you nuts That's even as a friend it drives me nuts but like what's interesting about it is I I'm in even more awe of how amazing Adrian is knowing that I'm like I could never function that way, ever. So I think with Carlin, clearly brilliant comedian and rightful legend, but I think especially with his daughter, who I've met now several times, is wonderful. But between his daughter and Judd and um, Michael Bonifiglio, who put together that doc they did for HBO, I think they did a beautiful job at showing just what an incredibly creative and smart and ever-growing person he was. But what I noticed over time is all the stories about what a kind person he was. And I think as somebody that was raised to be a good person and put themselves out there and to look out for people, I feel really fortunate that I met someone that was already at legend status that treated this open micer child with the same kindness that you would treat any other, like, you know what I mean? He treated me like a peer and showed up in a way that has influenced how I show up to other comics, both peers and people just starting. Because if you were talking about the way you work, I was thinking that that sounds very akin to the way our friendly Ann Lord works. And we know about you because of her. She was doing yeah. our show. I heard it from both of you, but I, I forget who I heard it from first. She was identified as your comedy godmother. She's wonderful. I mean, I feel between her, Jim Andrinos, and Carol Montgomery, like they were mm, all people all that wonderful. were just out there making opportunities for themselves. 
maybe not always got the accolades that I feel like they deserved at the time. I mean, I'm really proud of everything that Carol's doing with the, um, was it Older Women of Comedy? Uh, uh, yeah, uh, Funny Women of a Certain Age. Yeah, I like how we said the same words, but like. <laughs> yeah, 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 no. Women of a Certain Age. So yeah, like I'm so proud of her. But I would say all three of them, especially when I was a teenager, like really just showed up for me and looked out for me and pushed me. I was telling somebody a memory recently because I'm like a pretty, I write a lot. I really am constantly writing and pushing myself. But like Jim Andrinas was one of the first people to bring me on the road. And I remember he was driving me back after being on the road. We're sitting in his car in front of my apartment. And he goes, can I say something to you? And I go, yeah, sure. He goes, when's the last time you wrote? And I was like, I don't know. He goes, doesn't seem like you're writing. And I got really defensive because I was not in therapy. And I was like, I'm writing. And he was just like, I don't think you are. And I was like, well, I'm in college. Like, I'm busy. Like, I was like genuinely <laughs> like really defensive and mad. And then I thought about it and he was right. I hadn't written anything new for like months and months. And if I say that this is important to me and that I want to keep growing, I had to do it no matter what. And so I actually came up with like a whole system to track how often I implemented just like new ideas. They didn't even have to become jokes, right. just like how often I was pushing myself to write and implement new ideas. And I stuck to that system. Now it's like kind of automatic, but I visually and calculated how often. And that was 100% because he was like, you're better than this. Like you should be writing more. And I'm to this day grateful because he solidified a habit that is one of the reasons I'm successful. When you first did our show, our show was the midnight show. Yes. At the Common Basis Theater. Yes, I remember that. I remembered being a little uncomfortable at how young you were to be in that creepy a place. When I was 16, I was doing open mics right next to a strip club, and I got kicked out several times because I didn't even look 16 when I was 16. Yeah, I mean, you lose all innocence in this business. All my friends are, like, genuinely, like, traumatized, debaucherous dudes. <laughs> oh, in other words, comics. Yeah, comedians. <laughs> I feel grateful because there's a lot of people that looked out for me and made sure yeah. that I was safe, but also like I had a good head on my shoulders and I never was a big drinker. I always yeah. kind of was focused on stand up. Most of the bad things that happen are at parties and I've had social anxiety my whole life. So I was like, I'm just here to tell jokes and go home and hang yeah. on my cat. So you're on the road with Mendrinos now and, and, and you're starting to do stuff like that. You're getting more disciplined about uh, the writing. Did you have any specific goals when you set out other than just I want to make a living at this? I don't even know if I knew, like I was so young and I had read so many books that said it took 10 years to find your voice and the likelihood of you making it is so rare that in the beginning it was like, I just want to be able to watch comedy for free. <laughs> like I really had such low goals. I just wanted to try it, see if I was good at it and get better if I could and just well, I loved stand-up so much, I just wanted to watch it as much as possible. So it wasn't until I started getting passed at clubs and I started doing the road more that it was like, I want to get on TV and I, I want to be able to do this full time and, and stuff like that. So I got on Comedy Central when I was 22 and I got a manager and I started... What were you doing? Uh, uh, premium Blend or one of those things? Or? The one right after it was uh, live at Gotham. So I did that at 22 and, you know, I started auditioning for stuff and started working the road a little bit more. But it was a really like false start in a lot of ways. Like it felt like it was the beginning of something, but it really turned into nothing. Mm -hmm. And that was like a real kind of mind fuck, if I'm being honest. It really sent me into like a bitter headspace and I was really sad and it's pretty unbearable to be around. And can I ask what was the nature of the false start? 
thinking that this eight-minute spot on Comedy Central was going to launch me into being a full-time comedian. And it just, I couldn't get any more TV spots. I was struggling to get road work. I was paying my bills $50 gigs at a time. I was feeling overlooked, which I think everybody in this business does at any given time. But I... I was very fortunate because I started young, people paid attention to me. Mm-hmm. And then when things didn't materialize in the way that I felt like they would, I felt really abandoned. And I think we all kind of use comedy in this industry as like a way to validate our existence or our value or say that we're special because we didn't get that as children. And I just, there's a lot of things I got into comedy in a really positive way. Like I wanted to be creative and I wanted to express myself, but there was a lot of negativity of like, if I'm on TV, then I am lovable. If I'm successful at this, then people will value me. And it really took failing, like being dumped because I was exhausting to be around and not getting everything that I thought I should and feeling like I was going backwards and getting into therapy to really rehone my headspace because it was this I was a hard worker and I was a funny person. It was my headspace that was like causing emotional fires. I remember 10 years in, I decided I wasn't gonna audition for anything, nothing for TV, no festivals, no clubs. I was just gonna do anything that I could do on my own. And at the time it was self-produce an album. So I just wrote as much as I could, got up anywhere I could, kept my head down low and just tried to be as funny as possible and then do this album and then use the album to prove that I was a headliner and to prove that I had value and fix my headspace. Mm-hmm. I was 25 at the time. It was yeah. one of the best things I ever did for myself to the point where like that album definitely helped make me a headliner. I got a shit ton of auditions. I got another manager. Like big things actually happened. Not as big as I would hoped, but it definitely, it was the beginning of where I am now. Mm-hmm. Everything that I am doing now is because of the choices I made almost almost 12 years ago. That being said, that hour, I had somebody film it because I was already utilizing YouTube and utilizing social media. I got really dorky into social media. I didn't have a manager and I thought if having a manager is just somebody that shouts your name out there, I'm going to have YouTube and, and social media do it. So I read like every social media book and I started just trying to understand it to represent myself. I remember an article about you uh, when one of your specials was released on YouTube. And it was mentioned you and a couple of other comics of a certain weight that had done so at the same time. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I thought that was an interesting move at that point. And I, yeah, I, I so, get it, but it was different at that point. Yeah. So Hannibal Burris, it was in the New York Times and Hannibal Burris, who is huge, put out his newest special on YouTube. You started to see traction because like Sam Morrell put it out there and he got millions of views and Joe List put it out there and Mark Norman put it out there and I put it out there and we were all getting millions of views. But at the same time, it's not Netflix. It's not HBO. Mm-hmm. We chose ourselves, and is that okay? And and when you see somebody big do it, all of a sudden people are like, oh, well, Hannibal did it, so maybe it is the right way. And now you're seeing more and more people do it. And I, I'm very fortunate. Like, the New York Times named me and many, many people, like, the specials to look out for or oh, watch nice. in 2022. And they had a whole YouTube section, and it was it was me and Ari Shafir and Ranan Herzberg and um, Fatim. I can't think of what his last name is. He's an L.A. guy. Mm-hmm. But it's, you know, a range of audiences like Ari has like a huge audience but like I'm probably the I didn't spend that much on my special like it was honestly to have Netflix and HBO specials and all these people be listed so you have the Mike Berbiglias and you know the people on Netflix and all that stuff and then you have I think I paid $4,000 for my little YouTube special and I've already made the money back. Like, I don't think people really understand how little money I spent to make this special. (laughs) 
Well, let me ask you this. How do you make your money back off of something like that? YouTube ads, you make a lot of them. And I made all of them off back up with YouTube ads. Then I do put in like the description like, hey, this is free. You're watching it for free. So if you want to Venmo me or PayPal me. So people did that as well. And then I make it into an album and that goes on Sirius XM and you get royalties from Sirius XM and Pandora and Spotify and all those. And then people do sometimes physically buy the album as well. It's rarer and rarer these days, but people yeah. do want to support and they'll buy it. So, and that was the biggest thing I tried to do 10 years ago, which is I want to be financially stable. Right. I'm going to get my stuff on Sirius because everybody said that's where money was up until there was a bunch of lawsuits with Sirius right now, until they pulled everything off. I had three albums on Sirius and I was making my rent with royalty money. So to the point where like I go on the road because I love the road and you make good money on the road. I didn't expect to take a year off because of the pandemic, but I was able to not be scared because I made royalty money every month. Did you see an uptick in that during pandemic? They were really nice. They actually emailed all the comics and said, hey, we know you guys are hurting, so we're going to try to play everybody as much as possible. The series during the pandemic was great. They're going through a lawsuit right now and they've been less great, but I also understand they're being sued and it is what it is. So I would say for me, putting my stuff on YouTube. So what's even more interesting, so that hour that I recorded over 10 years ago during the pandemic, I was trying to sell the hour that came out during the pandemic, Self Help Me, and I was close to selling it to Comedy Central. And then, of course, because of the pandemic, they fired everybody and every, the whole department got gutted. Yeah. But before that, I put my old hour, which I was already like giving away for free on the road if you signed up for my mailing list. Mm-hmm. I just put it on there to kind of prove that I have a fan base. It has almost 3 million views right now. And I have like jokes on there that's like, Tinder, that's new. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> like, it's like really like, it really does to the point where some people are like, um, what is this? And I was like, it came out a long time ago. I just don't age. But what's interesting about it is that helped my when my special finally did come out two months later. I continued to build a fan base off why, this old why? hour. So it did well in the moment. And so like, they're looking forward to new material yeah, from the yeah. person they've discovered. And they get it right away because that's clearly an old hour. And then they discover this other hour. So and like people start calling it a special when it was always just an album that I paid a guy a hundred bucks yeah. to film. It's one <laughs> camera. It's like, but it also made me understand that when you put stuff on YouTube, if they can hear you and they can see you and it's funny, you don't need 18 cameras and you don't need to spend $40,000. Yeah. It's why I went even lower budget for this new one because I know I couldn't afford to go as big. I knew it was going to go straight to YouTube and the quality of the material could stand out on its own. So to be named one of the like the specials to watch in 2022 was like, honestly, I feel like a real victory to myself, but a real victory to just comics doing stuff on their own. Like yeah. I even said to the writer, I was like, thanks for going outside of the networks because to say something is good and it's they're already famous and they're already on Netflix, it's like, yeah, of course it's good. They have all the money and the reputation behind them. But how are the same way that they don't really pay features, they don't put features up in hotels, mm-hmm. they just don't support younger comics making money and getting better. It's yeah. the same thing with younger headliners and people trying to make a name for themselves. If you don't support us, you're never going to hear about us. And now that we don't really need the middleman because of self-producing albums and because of self-producing specials and putting on your own tours and social media and all this stuff where we have direct contact with our audience, it's great, but they still kind of are like, yeah, but you're not on TV. And I think that's starting to shift. 
All right, so you're back on the road. So you're happy on the road. You still enjoying it now after a break? Yeah, I mean, especially when things started to open up in April of 2021. It was so funny. Like, I felt like an open micer again in the sense of, like, excitement with, like, establishment. Like, I was in such a good mood. I was, like, hugging comics I don't like. I was like, get in here, buddy. Like, I was just so excited to be performing in clubs and to be around, like, other comics. It lasted a couple of months. And then one day, like, I bombed and I'm like, fuck this. Like I was just like in a bad mood. I was like, oh, that wore off pretty quickly. But like I am genuinely happy to be out again. Did you go through any any uh, period of like feeling awkward or right back up on the bike? I feel fortunate that I always was doing like Zoom shows and I was always doing park shows and whatever. Like I never fully stopped and I did some longer sets. I mean, definitely doing a full hour. You definitely felt like you had like baby deer on ice legs in the beginning. But I think after about a week of being back on the road, it does come back. Because even sometimes I'll take off, like where I'll just be doing city spots and I won't be headlining for like a couple of months. Yeah. And it's the same kind of thing. You The first set back, you feel a little wiggly. Yeah, but yeah. all it takes is like one set and like maybe like saying some jokes in your hotel room. And it, it comes back pretty quickly. Since you referenced Zoom shows, I, I'm curious because everyone seems to have a different take on there. For me, as a a producer and emceeing the Little Dog and Pony show, I was resistant to that because that's not what we do. There's no way we can approximate that. But I was surprised to see who did and who didn't embrace Zoom shows as something to do during the the pandemic times. Do you feel like that fed you at all artistically or, you know, for your stand-up? Did it keep you your chops? It did, especially because my main goal, because I knew my, because I had taped my special in 2019, in November of 2019, and I knew it was going to come out in 2020. Like I said, I was already ready to write and create new stuff. And so I utilized Zoom shows to write new stuff. So like I did an hour where I told my audience, pay what you want, and I'm just going to do as much new stuff as possible. And I ended up doing like 45 minutes and like using notes and like just being kind of sloppy. And then I created a show called Zoom Diner. At the beginning, it was like every two weeks and then eventually it was once a month. But I would have me and two other comics. You would come on, you would do five minutes. You would like do a joke and we would be like, oh, I like that. Or actually, just so you know, that kind of actually sounds like this old Jim Gaffigan bit. So I think you can still do it, but maybe go in a different direction or, hey, this is really funny. Have you thought of this? So we would kind of like workshop it. Like me and Adrian and Carmen, we'd go to a diner in between shows and be like, hey, I can't get this one line to work. What do you think? And I started doing this behind the scenes kind of public thing. I still get people that come out to shows and say they loved Zoom Diner. And I did a pay what you can. In the beginning, we had like over 100 people. Clearly, as things started to open up, it was more like 50 here, 75 there. But I was really grateful. I was able to pay comics really good money. Almost every joke on my special the early creation of it was Zoom Diner shows. And then because I knew it was a lot of like loyal people and people returning, I made sure that I always had new stuff to try out. Did you feel you were still able to get a sense of what was working and not working in the same way or in I would say it was like a yardstick but it wasn't fully accurate my timing was off as well as I would be like oh there needs to be a joke here where I could get away with that on zoom but I couldn't get away with it in person I would say if working a new joke out in person I would know when it was done I think I didn't always officially know when it was done on zoom and I would get like 70 to 80 percent there and the rest of it I had to figure out in person so it would be like extra tweaked 
once the world opened up. So this is where we've landed. What's next? I'm all over the place. I wrote a pilot, kind of a dramedy, like a historical fiction dramedy. I did a lot of research. During the pandemic, I wrote this script. It got picked up by a small production company, but they're so small that we need a bigger production company. We'll see if anything happens with that. I'm actually already starting to think like maybe I'll turn it into a novel if nobody wants it, which is a little Mm -hmm. crazy because I've never, I wrote my cat book, but that's like silly cat anecdotes. This is like and when, when, I'm sorry, for the sidebar, I do have to ask about the book. It's got one of the great titles ever. Uh, Why Cats Are Assholes. Thank you. I've been telling everybody about this book when I needed it on the mic. Yeah. Yeah, so Why Cats Are Assholes, was that a pandemic project or was that something that just came out during pandemic? A little bit of both. I got the book deal right before the pandemic and then I started writing it. I was actually slowing down and taking time off to get this thing done. And then the pandemic happened and they were like, go write your book. And I was like, oh, thank you, world. So it was like a little, it was like a half and half. And then it came out in March of 2021. So I think writing is starting to be both like scripts and books and stuff are starting to kind of take over my heart a little bit more. Yeah, I think that's the direction I'm going to continue to go in. And again, if nobody wants a book that I make, this last one, I was fortunate that it was picked up by a publisher. But I have several friends that have self-published. I think, again, the world of creativity is going, if nobody wants it, fucking put it out yourself. I feel really fortunate that I can be creative and still have my work be seen. I've known you long enough to know that dyslexia is something you really do wrestle with. Uh, Is that a big hurdle to clear when you're writing something as big as a novel or a screenplay or a script or what have you? When you want people to see it, yeah, yeah. So even when I did my cat book, I warned my publisher um, and my editor. I was like, hey, I'm super dyslexic. Is that going to be a problem? They're like, no. And so it really wasn't. I did my best when I gave them the edit. Like I looked up words and whatever, but like I can't tell you how many times my editor was like, what's this word? And I was like, I don't know. You get to a place where even your brain doesn't recognize stuff. So the first draft is for nobody to see anyway because it's trash. So I spell things the way I want to spell them and I'm all over the place. And then when I start to hone it and go back, then I'll start being like, Siri, how do you spell definitely? (laughs) Siri, how do you spell tomorrow? And you start to make it at least a little bit more readable for the editor. But even if I self-published, you hire an editor. They do their little make things smart vibes and make everything spelled and put commas where commas apparently are supposed to go. And then you move (laughs) on. I have to tell you, I'm, I'm super happy to hear about you doing all this writing because I remember when you were a much younger comic five years ago. No, I remember one point before you were getting that level of work, you had written a story about the experience of being a costumed character when you were doing, doing that to make some bucks. It was a really great story and I was impressed with the writing. And I think it was just after I had read that that I found out you were dyslexic and I was just thinking about the kind of challenge that must have been. Yeah, I mean, I feel fortunate to be in the age of technology because like I said, I learned this trick at a dyslexic conference that I talked at. The struggle is you don't know how to spell something, but then you have to look it up and you don't know how to look it up. Like I said, like definitely is hard for me because if you type in definitely and you typed defiantly, it is technically right, but that's not the word I meant to use. So I remember being in college and somebody's like, I know you meant the word definitely, but you wrote defiantly and I really like that. And it was like so embarrassing to me. So now like I literally will be like, Siri, how do you spell definitely? Mm-hmm. And she'll, she's not doing it right now. <laughs> hey, hey, Siri. How do you spell definitely? Come on, girl. 
Oh, she usually says it out loud, but then it, it pops up on screen. So that's the other thing is like it's been. <laughs> well, thanks a lot. I know. Sometimes she, it, she really does. I might have put the volume off, but she'll spell it. And that's like it does. I don't even have to stop and I can just continue to write. And like same thing with emails for work. It could be really embarrassing that I write this email and I, you know, now things get underlined. But again, it's it's not enough for me. Like I need extra tools. So I, I feel fortunate today as a dyslexic person and kids today being dyslexic or dysgraphic or whatever kind of learning disability that there's so many tools to kind of help push them to the next level and not make them feel like they can't be creative or write or read or whatever. Do you speak often on it? Or, or I do. I do a lot of podcasts. I've done a couple events. I just did a charity event for a dyslexic organization in Orlando a couple weeks ago. Oh, man, that's great. Well, before I send you off into uh, your own life out of the studio, anything coming up that to particularly plug or keep an eye out for? Yeah, I mean, come see me on tour. I'm I'm really pushing a lot of new tour dates starting in January. All that stuff is at LizMealy.com. So it's L-I-Z-M-I-E-L-E.com. And then my book, Why Cats Are Assholes, uh, is on Amazon and Barnes & Noble's, IndieBound, local bookstores. And yeah, I'm almost done my new hour. So I hopefully will tape a special in the spring or something because I'm mm. getting there. I can't wait for that. And I can't wait till we are back in the clubs. Uh, you can come visit us sometime when you're yeah. not on the road. Thank you for spending time with us, Liz. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Great Eric. to talk with you. You're one of my favorites. <laughs> All right, that was our conversation with the wonderful, very funny Liz Mealy. It was great talking to her. As I always say, doing this podcast is fun because I get to know people I already know. And that's a nice little gift that comes with it. Anyway, I enjoyed talking with her. If you want to see more Liz Mealy and see her doing what she does, she has a special that is streaming on YouTube. It's called The Ghost of Academic Future. It's free. You can watch it and donate to her if you want to, whatever, but it's a great special. You should check it out. Very funny. She also had a book, which if you've already listened to the conversation, you know I blanked on the name of her book after I'd bought like a half dozen for friends. You've got to check out the book, especially if you've got a cat person in your life. Get this book. It's called Why Cats Are Assholes. It's very funny and quite wonderful. And, uh, oh yeah, i got to let you know who helped make this happen. Our producer... Gary Hardcastle, the Wizard of Oohs and Oz. Also, additional audio engineering done by Miles Mixapeel Blue Spruce. Our production assistant, Stanley Vessio. Our production assistant assistant, Jeremy Pueo. Theme music written and performed by King of the Hill, Courtney Hill. And we're going to leave you today with some music, as we like to do. This is actually from Liz Mealy's sister. She is Elamy, and the song is called What to Do, Sad Song. She's awesome. She's talented. Google her, buy her music, listen to her music, enjoy her music now. Until next time, my name is Eric Vetter. I love you all.
Talk to you soon. Love you. Bye. Bye.